Welcome to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast, where each week we bring you selected content from the magazine for your encouragement and edification. Our first selection this week comes from the February 1994 issue of the Banner magazine, which is issue 365, entitled The Rediscovery of Old Princeton Seminary. It was written by David B. Calhoun. In his lectures on pastoral theology, Dr. Alexander discussed the nature of the pastoral office. He considered the minister's call and qualifications, his marriage and financial affairs, his responsibilities to home and foreign missions, pastoral visitation and religious instruction, revivals, preaching, and public worship. He stressed the need for ministers to serve the frontier, the slaves, and children. He told the students that if he were a young man, he would, God willing, choose to preach to children, who he described as a rich, uncultivated missionary field. For Alexander, pastoral visitation was a combination of piety, authority, compassion and common sense, each of which he possessed in generous measure. Yearly pastoral visits to each family should be devoted entirely to religious instruction and devotional exercises, he would say. He commended to his students the early Calvinistic practice of dividing a congregation into districts for catechizing children. On these topics, the versatile professor was especially impressive. One of his students wrote, We well remember that his class went to his lectures on pastoral theology as if going to the sanctuary. It was a season of worship. In the homiletics class, the students read lectures on rhetoric and belles lettres by the Scottish Hugh Blair. Overshadowing the text, however, was Alexander's own less formal style. An effective and sought-after preacher, he stressed naturalness and simplicity. William Sprague, who entered the seminary in the fall of 1816, remembered that when Alexander preached, he felt rather as if he had been talked to rather than preached to. Theodore Kyler compared Dr. Alexander's sermons to the waters of Lake George, so translucently clear that you could see every bright pebble far down in the depths. A child could comprehend him, yet a sage be instructed by him. According to Charles Hodge, Dr. Alexander's sermons were generally a stream, following their own sweet will, always keeping in their course but still free. Hodge explained, We have often sat in admiration and witnessed this process of spontaneous evolution, no one knowing what was to come next, and yet something always did come making a real advance on what had preceded, awakening attention and exciting expectation. Dr. Alexander's voice was clear and high-pitched, and his gestures restrained. He had the habit of placing his forefinger under his chin and sometimes against his nose in a peculiar manner. He always began quietly, avoiding all that brings the speaker's personality before the hearer. When he got into his sermon, however, his eye kindled, his face was radiant as he was carried along by the operation of the Holy Spirit working through his thoughts and words. 
Listeners often commented that Dr. Alexander preached as though he was speaking to each person in the audience, individually. In commenting on the fact that the best sermons can never be exactly reproduced, much less written, J.W. Alexander remembered his father's example and stated that the best written discourse of Dr. Alexander is no more to his best preaching than a black candle is to a burning flame. At the 1816 meeting of the Synod of Virginia in Fredericksburg, Dr. Alexander preached on the text from 1 Corinthians 5-7, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. He began with his characteristic humility and modesty, and one eminent lawyer, greatly disappointed in the performance of the famous preacher, rose from his seat and left the church. Samuel B. Wilson, later professor of theology in Virginia's Union Seminary, described the rest of the sermon. He said, As Alexander passed from the description of the Jewish Passover to the sacrifice of Christ, he said, bending forward and looking intently on the communion table spread before him, where the bread and wine lay covered, but where is our lamb? At these words, so impressively uttered, and accompanied by a gesture so significant, an old French dancing master who scarcely ever entered the church rose from his seat near the pulpit and gazed intently to see if there was not something on the communion table which he had not seen. Dr. Alexander's sermons were always instructive and moving, but he was at his best in certain places. Francis Wayland, Baptist preacher and president of Brown University, heard Dr. Alexander preach twice one Sunday at Gardner Springs, New York City Church. He wrote to J.W. Alexander. He preached a sermon to Christians, admirable throughout, but not that I recollect, marked by any of those bursts of eloquence of which he was so capable. A high pulpit and a city audience is not the place for those things. An old Virginia church or courthouse Crowded around the windows is the place for such eloquence. Those magic bursts of feeling must be rare among the conventionalities and respectabilities of a city congregation. The sound of a bell depends as much on the quality of the metal as on the vigour of the blow. James replied that Wayland was entirely correct in his evaluation of his father's preaching. In the pulpit he was two different men, he wrote and least of all was he himself when he came into the cities to preach. Archibald Alexander's doctrinal sermons were replete with truth and wisdom. Charles Hodge commented that Archibald Alexander's doctrinal sermons were replete with truth and wisdom, but he was more impressive when he took some biblical story or scene and described it, or when he preached an experimental sermon drawn from personal experience, observation and the Bible. After Dr. Alexander's death, Hodge recalled three of his most memorable sermons. One on Abraham's offering up Isaac, one on the transfiguration, and the third on the last three days in Christ's life. The only way in which I can give an idea of the impression produced by these discourses, Hodge said, is by saying that his hearers felt, in a measure, as they would have done had they been present at the scenes described. We left the chapel after his sermon on the Transfiguration, feeling that we had seen the Lord in his glory, at least as though through a glass darkly. Not only Dr. Alexander's preaching, but his reading of scripture impressed the students. 
John S. Hart, who studied at the seminary from 1831 to 1834, wrote this. Who that had ever heard that almost despairing wail with which the venerable Dr. Archibald Alexander used to utter the cry, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, but felt that he had received a new revelation of the meaning of that mysterious utterance? It was not that Dr. Alexander understood Hebrew better than thousands of others have done. It was because he had meditated on the subject until he had the whole dreadful scene fully before him. Dr. Alexander told his students that they should not wait to be in preparation for preaching until they were in the vein. Begin however you feel, he said, and write until you get in the vein, however long it may be. Tis thus men do in mining. He urged the students to avoid a show of scholarship in their sermons. He said sometimes a preacher becomes so enveloped in criticism or metaphysics that plain people cannot understand him. The minister should be a critic and metaphysician, he said, but carry only the result to the pulpit. But neither should preachers be careless in the construction and delivery of the sermons. He told the students that one of the best sermons he ever heard violated many rules of grammar, rhetoric and elocution. But he said it was not its violation of rules that made it excellent. Preaching the gospel is not to gratify a refined taste, Dr. Alexander said, but the preacher should avoid offending men of taste. It is a grievous fault to speak nonsense in the name of the Lord. The main object is to make preaching useful to the souls of men. Avoid generalities, continued Alexander. They convey no instruction. Do not preach on subjects that you don't understand. He suggested concentrating on the greatest truths, because people are generally lamentably deficient as to even these. In fact, the preacher should go over the whole system of theology and natural religion and evidences. He then listed doctrines that were central in his theology course as appropriate for the core of preaching. Alexander held before the students the doctrine of election as a ground of joy. Morality should be taught by pointing out the injury to society of wrongdoing and not by denunciation. Party politics is not admissible, but discussion of duties or rulers is appropriate. Constant preaching of moral duties alone tends to harden people, Alexander said. The minister should preach on Christian experience, afflictions and temptations, and should know how to deal with awakened souls. Alexander offered some pointed caveats. Want of variety will weary anybody, he said. Have enough subjects and preserve the peculiar dress given to each text. He warned against a cold or formal pompous manner, he warned against ranting, noisy preaching, and an angry or timid method. There are no discourses, said this able preacher, heard with so little attention as sermons. It is not easy to propose truth clearly, level to the meanest capacity, yet to preserve dignity of style. Dr. Alexander lived next door to the seminary building, and this proximity to his classes made him quite sedentary. His son remarked in wonder that it is certain that in the last 30 years of his life, he used as little bodily motion as any man of his times, confining himself not only to one apartment, but to one chair. 
From that chair he could see the distant horizon marked by blue hills, which must have reminded him of his Virginia home. On the stroke of the bell for class, Dr Alexander would emerge from his study, wrapped in his cloak, and step quickly to the seminary building. In his classroom, after reading a passage, he would shift his square spectacles back over his forehead and look out piercingly at the class as he gave his extemporary comments in a high, clear voice. He was a gifted teacher and had the art, his son wrote, of making every learner willing. Much of Dr. Alexander's time was spent in personal counselling. J.W. Alexander wrote in 1835, I know not a busier man in the world than my old father, and half of every day is spent in talking with students privately. True, he does not chase them from room to room, or run through the roll, but he never chains up his gate, or pleads any business to exclude anyone at any hour. Dr. Alexander was able to get quickly to a problem and offered kind, helpful advice. One of his students said that of all Dr. Alexander's strengths, nothing impressed him more than his wonderful knowledge of people and their needs. He described him as the Shakespeare of the Christian heart. A stream of students and others availed themselves of his counsel. Charles Hodge once said, If any student went to Dr. Alexander in a state of despondence, the venerable man was sure to tell him, Look not too much within, look to Christ, dwell on his person, on his work, on his promises, and devote yourself to his service, and you will soon find peace. Dr. Alexander gladly talked with all who came, but he did not want to waste time. Occasionally, during a caller's boring monologue, he was not beyond the temptation to abstract his eye and his attention and hum a tune to himself. Once a zealous student attempted to convert Alexander to the position of total abstinence. Alexander talked with him at some length. But finally his patience forsook him and he said, Mr B, I have made up my mind on this subject before you were born. As a general rule, Dr Alexander never drank wine. But when its use came to be considered sinful by many, he would sometimes, in company, take a glass for conscience sake. Dr. Alexander greatly disliked religious show or pretense. A man once interrogated Alexander concerning the evidences of his personal piety. Provoked by Alexander's silence, the man exclaimed, Have you no religion, Dr. Alexander? None to speak of, was the quiet reply. Until almost the very close of his life, Dr. Alexander continued to teach his classes. His son wrote, at the stroke of the bell, he might be seen without fail issuing from his study door and going across the small space which divided the seminary from his grounds, much bent and with his eyes turned to the ground as he paced slowly on, wrapped in his cloak and with his profuse silver locks waving in the wind. But often, as if at some sudden dash of thought, he would quicken his steps almost to running and ascend the threshold with alacrity. A few days before he died, Alexander told William Schenck that if such be the Lord's will, he was ready and even preferred to go now. My affairs have all been attended to, my arrangements are all completed, and I can think of nothing more to be done, he said. He added, I have greatly desired to see my son James before my departure, and sometimes feared I should not have that privilege. But the Lord has graciously brought him back in time to see me, having led him safely through much peril on the ocean. 
My children are all with me. The church of which you are pastor is prosperous and flourishing. The seminary faculty is again full, and the institution is in an excellent condition. The Lord has very graciously and tenderly led me all the days of my life. Yes, all the days of my life. And he is now with me still. In him I enjoy perfect peace. Dr. Alexander then bade farewell to his former student and friend, adding the words, Continue as you have begun and have done thus far to preach Christ and him crucified, scripturally, plainly, earnestly, and God will continue richly to bless your ministry, even as here he has so lately done. There were last visits with Charles Hodge, who later said that he never saw and never imagined a deathbed where there was so little of death. He told how Dr. Alexander, with a smile, handed him a white bone walking stick, carved and presented to him by one of the chiefs of the Sandwich Islands. And he said, you must leave this to your successor in office, that it may be handed down as a kind of symbol of orthodoxy. A.A. Hodge saw his father standing in his study, weeping, exclaiming, It is all past. The glory of our seminary has departed. When relieved from pain, Dr. Alexander said that it was due to the ministration of angels and added, They are always around the dying beds of God's people. He acknowledged that his theological views were what they've always been and on another occasion stated, All my theology is reduced to this narrow compass. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. On October the 22nd, 1851, Archibald Alexander died peacefully. Our second selection this week is from Archibald Alexander's own Thoughts on Religious Experience. What you're about to hear is taken from pages 105 to 109 of that volume. It is often a question among serious people whether every person who is a real Christian knows not only that he is such, but the time and place of his conversion. This subject has already been partially discussed in these essays, but demands a more particular and extended consideration. It is well known to all that the Christian denominations which exist in this country differ from one another in their views of various doctrines and rites of religion. But the fact is not so well known that the religious experience of the individuals of the several denominations is as various as their doctrines and external forms of worship. To those who view these things at a distance and superficially, all religious people appear alike, and many, when they hear of a number converted, take it for granted that they have all passed through the same train of exercises to whatever sect they belong. There are some serious people, well indoctrinated in the scriptures, who, while they hold a sound theory respecting the nature of regeneration, never speak of their own religious exercises, believing that such exposures are not for edification, as they tend to foster spiritual pride and vain glory, and afford a temptation to hypocrisy, which is commonly too strong for the deceitful heart. 
Among such professors, you hear nothing of conviction and conversion. And when any of this class fall into a distressing case of conscience which urges them to seek spiritual counsel, they always propose the case in the third person. They will talk to you by the hour and the day about the doctrines of religion and show that they are more conversant with their Bibles than many who talk much of their religious feelings. There are two objections to this practice. The first is that it has the effect of keeping out of view the necessity of a change of heart. The second is that it is a neglect of one effectual means of grace. Religious conversation, in which Christians freely tell of the dealings of God with their own souls, has often been a powerful means of quickening the sluggish soul and communicating comfort. It is, in many cases, a great consolation to the desponding believer to know that his case is not entirely singular. And if a traveller can meet with one who has been over the difficult parts of the road before him, he may surely derive from his experience some salutary counsel and warning. The scriptures are favourable to such communications. Come and hear, says David, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. Paul seldom makes a speech or writes a letter in which he does not freely speak of his own religious joys and sorrows, hopes and fears. There is, no doubt, an abuse of this means of grace, as of others, but this is no argument against its legitimate use, but only teaches that prudence should govern such religious intercourse. The opposite extreme is not uncommon in some denominations, as where professors are publicly called upon, and that periodically, for their experience, or where, when professors are met, it is agreed that every one, in turn, shall give a narrative of his or her experience in religion. Such practices are not for edification. There are, however, cases in which it may be expedient, it may be delightful, for a few select friends to enter into a full detail of the dealings of God with their souls. The writer, in another place, published an account of such a conference in Holland, which he received from the late Dr. Livingston of New Brunswick. A company of pious friends having met for religious conversation, the subject which came up was the striking similarity of the experience of God's people in all ages and in all countries, when someone observed that there were present four persons from the four quarters of the world respectively and who had embraced religion in their native country. One was from the Dutch settlements in the East Indies, a second from the Cape of Good Hope, a third a young nobleman of Holland, and the fourth Dr. Livingston himself from the United States of America. It was then proposed, as an illustration of the subject of conversation, that each should give a narrative of his Christian experience. The company in attendance expressed the highest gratification and were no doubt greatly edified. 
It is much to be lamented that many persons who are fond of religious conversation deal so much in cant phrases and assume an air so affected and sanctimonious. This is the thing which disgusts grave and intelligent Christians and often occasions the wicked to ridicule or blaspheme. Let not your good be evil spoken of. Be not public nor indiscriminate in your communications of this kind. Take heed that you cast not your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and then turn again and rend you. It is a fact that what passes for conversion in one sect will be condemned as altogether insufficient in another. A few years since, there was what was called a great revival in a Presbyterian congregation in New Jersey. The presiding elder of the Methodist Society for that district, having classes of his church mingled with the people of that congregation, so that he had the opportunity of conversing with a number of the subjects of this work, gave it as his opinion to a person who communicated the fact to me that none with whom he spoke were converted, for he did not meet with one who would say that he knew his sins were pardoned. On the other hand, many of the conversions which take place at camp meetings and other meetings where there is much excitement, though the subjects do profess to know that their sins are pardoned, are not believed to be cases of sound conversion by Presbyterians and they are often confirmed in this opinion by the transitory nature of the Reformation produced. We have known instances of persons professing conversion at a camp meeting and filling the camp with their rejoicing who relapsed into their old habits of sin before reaching their own dwellings. In these strong excitements of the animal sensibilities there is great danger of deception. When feelings of distress are wound up to a very high pitch, there often occurs a natural reaction in the nervous system by which the bodily sensations are suddenly changed. And this, attended with some text of scripture impressed on the mind, leads the person to believe that he was in that moment converted, when in reality no permanent change has been effected. It is one thing to be persuaded of the truth of the gospel, and quite another to be certain that I have believed and that my sins are pardoned. John Wesley was for several years in the ministry and a missionary to America before he had this joyful sense of the forgiveness of sins, and he seems to intimate that until this time he was an unconverted man and most of his followers make this joyful sense of pardoned sin the principal evidence of conversion, and one which all must experience. Most serious, intelligent readers, however, will be of opinion that Wesley was as humble and sincere a penitent before this joyful experience as afterwards, and that it is a dangerous principle to make a man's opinion of his own state the criterion by which to judge of its safety. Certainly, we should greatly prefer to stand in the place of some broken-hearted, contrite ones who can scarcely be induced to entertain a hope respecting their acceptance to that of many who boast that they never feel a doubt of their own safety. Men will not be judged in the last day by the opinion which they had of themselves. 
For this confidence, it would seem, never forsakes some to the last who nevertheless will be cast into outer darkness. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. In early life, the writer knew some high professors of his own denomination who could tell the day and hour when God had mercy on them. One of these, a fair-spoken, plausible man, who had spent the former part of his life in pleasure and dissipation, gave such an account of his conversion as was adapted to produce envy and discouragement in professors who had been less favoured. And not only could he designate the month and day of the month, but the hour of the day when he obtained reconciliation with God. No one doubted of his piety, but mark the event. This high professor, a few years afterwards, was excommunicated from the church for manifest perjury. Another, whose experience was remarkable and his conversion sudden, became a preacher, then a fanatic, and finally an infidel. This man told me that though often in great spiritual distress, he never doubted of the goodness of his state. They who believe that a man may be a saint today and a devil tomorrow, not in appearance only, but in reality, easily account for these apostasies. But we are inclined to hold fast by what the beloved disciple says about such in his time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Few men in later times appear to have arisen to greater eminence in piety than Henry Martin, the missionary. The strength of the principle of holiness in his case was manifested in his habitual spirituality of mind and constant exercise of self-denial. Yet, as far as is related, his incipient exercises of religion were by no means strongly marked, but seem to have been rather obscure and feeble. The same is the fact respecting those two distinguished men of God, Philip and Matthew Henry, the father and the son. The early exercises of these men were not in any respect remarkable. Indeed, they both became pious when very young, and we rarely get a very distinct and accurate account of the commencement of piety in early life. But no one who is acquainted with the lives of these eminent ministers will deny that they grew up to an uncommon degree of piety, which in the experience of both, though characterized by genuine humility, was free from any mixture of gloom or austerity. True religion can rarely be found exhibiting so amiable an aspect, and yet, with these men, everything became a part of their religion. To this one object their whole lives were devoted. As mentioned, that excerpt can be found in Alexander's Thoughts on Religious Experience, which was first published in 1844 
and which the Banner of Truth first published in 1967, and our current edition is that of 2020. In this volume, Alexander deals with such things as faith in childhood and early religious impressions. He deals with the new birth as an event of great importance. He deals with the common aspects and also the divergences and diversities of religious experience in different converts. And in all things, he deals with these crucial topics in a biblically faithful and a pastorally sensitive way. Thank you for listening to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast. To subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats, or both, see the show notes or visit banneroftruth.org.